0: Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. Central banks are increasingly taking actions that may cause harm, that in order to mitigate the negative impact from central banks, it becomes necessary to authorize the circulation of a digital currency with a supply that cannot be controlled by any central bank and is only altered in accord with the objective and comfortable criteria. They can come after me, they can come after any individual, I'll die on this hill, but they can't stop this idea, and all the individuals, everyone in this
1: room is going to fight for what's right. So glad! So glad! So glad! So
2: glad you can join us! so important, and I hope you all can look yourself in the mirror and say, you're improving humanity, and don't you dare let anyone tell you otherwise.
0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Another exciting episode of Thriller Bitcoin. That's right. A whole new season. Season five of Thriller Premium, baby. That's right. We're bringing it. (laughs) We're bringing it on the first episode. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, we can't be stopped. We're holding the fucking line, right? (laughs) Today, on the first episode of Thriller Bitcoin, uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently, right? We're going to do things a little bit differently. We're gonna talk about El Salvador because we didn't do it proper. You know, we did these conferences early June and then we hopped out. (laughs) We said, vacay, then we hopped out. But now we're gonna do it properly. We're actually gonna discuss. CAR has had time to digest all this. I have had time to take it all in. I have had time to understand what Bitcoin has really brought to El Salvador and that's humanity. And I want to talk about that today in Bitcoin Frontline.
2: The Frontline.
0: On June 5th, 2021, El Salvador changed the world of Bitcoin forever, but it was a long road to get even here. El Salvador had to first make peace with their past before creating a new tradition of hope for the future. But to understand El Salvador, you must look back at its history and really look at where they came from. If you go way back, and we, we won't go too far back here, but if you but if you really want to dive deep, I've, I've actually created a whole article. Uh, you can head over to thrillerpremium.blog. That's right. We're writing articles now. <laughs> it's official. <laughs> thrillerpremium.blog. There'll be a link in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe to that. It's on the newsletter. But... You can clearly see that their history is a controversial one. They were, of course, the Linka. And that was the oldest indigenous civilization to settle in El Salvador. And then they were succeeded by the Olmecs. And we we can go on and on and on throughout centuries. But it wasn't until the 18th century that with the weakening of the Spanish crown's military power that we saw the result of the Napoleonic Wars. And we see that in November, 1811, the Salvadorian priests with this beautiful painting, I must say, uh, where, where they show the first independence uh, of, of celebration from San Salvador. And um, this movement, this this insurrection was suppressed. And many of its leaders were arrested and served sentences in jail. And then in 1821, the country finally achieved independence from Spain. And then we go on into the 1913s, 1927s with the Melendez and Quinenes dynasty, and we see that the the political climate during those years were very unstable. There was a lot of social activists, revolutionary leaders like Formando Marti. He helped found the Communist Party of Central America, and he became the leader of the International Red Aid in Latin America. Their goal was ultimately to help the poor and underprivileged Salvadorians. And then we saw here in October of 1979, a coup d'etat brought the revolutionary government, junta of El Salvador to power. It nationalized many private companies and took over much privately owned land. It really wasn't until the end of the 19th century that political and social, economic, and cultural foundations of this country were created with what you see today. At that time, about 60% of the farmland or coffee estates is owned by a few aristocratic families. Of course, this creates a lot of social inequality. And of course, this created unrest in the people of El Salvador. And when there's unrest in the world, only one country can save you, (laughs) the USA. Of course, the United States, being the United States, started meddling in the form of investment and approximately $35 million in direct military aid to combat insurrections and to guarantee this revolutionary government that El Salvador had implemented would not fail. But ultimately, with guerrilla warfare and the tactics that are used, they have no end. And there was a stalemate that started negotiations and arrangement that resulted in new political reforms. So from 1989 until 2004, Salvadorians favored the Nationalist Republican Alliance. Now this party voting in arena presidents in every election until 2009 These unsuccessful attempts of the left-wing party to win presidential elections led to its selection of a journalist. (laughs) Imagine that rather than a former guerrilla leader as a candidate. On March 15th, 2009, Mauricio Funes, a television figure became the first president from this party. One focus in his government is revealing the alleged corruption in past governments. Well, that's a start, right? But as long as you are not corrupt yourself. (laughs) Well, fast forward to October 2017. And, of course, an El Salvador court ruled that former president Mauricio Funes, in office since 2009 until 2014. And one of his sons had allegedly enriched themselves. (laughs) And they sought asylum in Nicaragua in 2016. Um, But... They got away. So to say there's corruption in El Salvador is an understatement. There's There's been corruption throughout the entire time of this civilization. It seems everybody is looking out for themselves, especially at the top, right? And then lo and behold, something changes. He's the youngest leader in Latin America. At 38 years
3: old, the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, comfortably won the general election in February. Bukele enjoys a nearly 90% approval rating, but there are challenges ahead. With one of the highest murder rates in the world, perhaps the main challenge for Central America's smallest country is gang-related violence. And slow growth has kept El Salvador's social and economic development stagnant. Corruption costs the government millions of dollars. And ever since the 12-year civil war ended in 1992, hundreds of thousands of Salvadorians have been fleeing the country every year, seeking a safe place to live and better opportunities. But President Bukele seems determined to turn things around. With just a few months in office, he's traveled extensively from North America to the Asia Pacific and to the Middle East. In Mexico, he secured investments on social programs that aim to reduce migration to North America. In China, he signed deals that will improve roads and facilities across El Salvador. And in Qatar, Bukele looked for opportunities in the energy sector and attended meetings with other world leaders at the Doha Forum.
0: The president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele. Yes, the president has been busy. If you look just here in 2020, following his election, the homicide rates, murders in El Salvador had dropped by as much as 60%. Since he became president, people have also stated that the reason might have been his non-aggression deal between parts of the government and the gangs, the party Nuevas Ideas, founded by Bukele, with his allies, the Ghana New Ideas, won around two-thirds of the vote in the legislative elections. His party won supermajority of 56 seats in the 84-seat parliament, and the supermajority enables Bukele to appoint judges and to pass laws. But how does America feel about him, right? What does the average American out there feel about this El Salvadorian 38-year-old president? Is it good? Is it bad? Let's figure that out. Because there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin space who feel like, he won't be able to do things he wants to do if the United States is kind of on his back, along with the central banks, and we'll definitely get into that. But let's look at it from an American standpoint. Looking in. Let's do that. Reina, reina de mi vida.
4: Y enas, y reino de alegría. Let me dance, talk
2: estimated 2 million Salvadorans living in the United States maybe a little more maybe more and more coming now yeah why do you think so many people have moved from this country to the US well
1: it's obvious i mean our country has failed to provide two basic things which are the two main drivers of immigration which is the lack of economic opportunity and the lack of security if i mean most people won't like won't, doesn't want to leave their country right they, they like their culture. They like their food. They like their weather. I mean, it's, it's their country. They have their family members here, their friends. They live their. Most people live their country because of two main reasons. And those are the two main reasons. And if you're out of the civil war we had in the eighties, well, that was the main driver at the, fir- at the beginning. And then you have people, you know, that have cousins over there. And then the cousin says, Oh, come here and you'll right. find a job here. And there's mm-hmm. relative security based on what you have over there and what you have here. And so, those are the main drivers of immigration. Our country has failed to provide security and economic opportunity so people leave. So,
2: So, but if the richest country in the world says, if you cross over the border, we will give you free healthcare, free education, all these benefits, I mean, that's that's a draw, isn't it?
1: Of course, it's an incentive. I mean, everything everything in life is Pros and cons, right? Yes. So you have for immigration, you have a con that probably you don't know the language, or you have to. The, the journey is a difficult one; you may die in the journey. But if, if in the end you will receive a lot of things, of course, it's a it's a the, the, the pros go up and the cons go down. So it depends. It's an incentive game here, and uh, if for example, if here in El Salvador we have better jobs and better security, it's less it's less of an incentive, and you can see it in the numbers. We haven't changed the country 180 degrees year. in two one, years. In one year and nine months, we have been in government, of course. But if you see the numbers two years ago, you see the numbers now, immigration from Assad has, going, has, gone, has yes. gone down. And it's a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons is that we have improved security by 75%. I mean, we, the homicide rate has gone down by 75%. And the violent crimes have gone down by 75%. And economic opportunities are a little better than what they were two two years ago. And there's a a little more hope here that the future is going to be better. So that lowers the numbers. That's why you have caravans of 10,000 people going out of Honduras, and you don't have any caravans going out from El Salvador. But two years ago, El Salvador was bigger than Honduras in immigration. So you have have incentives and drivers here, like, like I told you before, economic opportunities and security, and you have incentives over there. What you will find at the border, and what do you find inside, in the, and with the and, and with law enforcement over there?
2: Losing energetic, risk-taking people is obviously bad for your country. You want of to course. keep people like that yes. here. Do you resent the fact that the United States has offered all these incentives for people to leave your country and go there?
1: No, no I would never resent that. But I just think that for a country, it's it's not profitable to get the people out. First, it's immoral. I mean, you need to provide for your people, right? That's, yes. That's that's a the moral issue, but you also have an economic issue. If you send your hardworking people and your talented people and people that wanna work and wanna risk it just to go and work, you wanna keep them here because those will be the drivers of your economy. You don't want them there so they could send a remittance which would be a small portion of what they will earn and will they uh, um, produce, you want them to produce here. But you're, you're talking about problems that have been there and not only in El Salvador, but in a lot of countries in Latin America for the last four decades. And this this immigration thing has, is just feeding on dependency uh, on immigration on the countries that drive it. So it's it's not good for, for this, the United States and it's not good for El Salvador. The best thing for both of us is to keep our people here and to provide for our people right here in our country. And that's what people, Here want yes so at the end it's not I won't resent it of course but I I think that it's better if we can keep our people here that's our job and and morally that's the that's the thing we have to do explain
2: quickly if you would what you just said it's not good for the United States to become dependent on immigration what do you mean by
1: that no 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 Uh, Latin American countries if. If you don't provide for your people economic opportunities, if your economy is right. uh, doing bad, if your security is doing bad, people are gonna people are gonna leave, and they're gonna go and try to find a rich country. Right? They're not gonna leave for Guatemala. Right? They're gonna try right. and go and leave for the, they're gonna go. To, they want to go to the United States. So that makes this country dependent on immigration because what you you become a net, a net exporter of people. You're not exporting pro, products or, or services. Yeah. You're exporting people. So, that makes your economy dependent on that because then that peop- those pe- people send money back right. to their home countries, which is not a good economic formula, but makes the economies dependent on that. So, when you keep these countries depending on that, the economy is like a vicious cycle. So, it's bad for the United States because immigration will go up and it's bad for... Our countries because people leaving the country will go up as well, so it's it's bad for both of them. <laughs> Chachos, buenos días. Llegamos ya a las nueve con catorce minutos nueve catorce en el sábado. Y no me va a decir que haga desorden que traigo ayer me diagnosticaron migraña.
0: ¿Cómo se quites volado? Solo con pastillitas, ve. Así que desorden ahora, no yo, tranquilo. Queda aprobada la ley de Bitcoin.
4: Lawmakers in El Salvador broke into applause after voting to approve Bitcoin as legal tender on Wednesday making the Central American country the first in the world to fully adopt the cryptocurrency. Bitcoiners around the world, the time has come. We are ready. The Congress approved the bill by a supermajority despite concerns the move could complicate talks with the International Monetary Fund, from which El Salvador is seeking more than $1 billion in financial support. One of the few lawmakers who voted against the bill expressed his misgivings.
3: For some, this is bold. For others, irresponsible. But it's a bet as well as an experiment. I regret how this has come to pass and what's behind it, and
2: I hope for the good of the community to be proven wrong.
4: In a tweet, President Naib Bukele cheered the approval in Congress, which is controlled by his party and allies, one of whom echoed his exuberance for embracing the virtual currency. This is an important step for our country, a step for technology, a step into the future to bring us financial inclusion, investment, tourism, innovation, and economic development to our country. Regulators and policymakers all over the world have warned about Bitcoin's volatility and that it facilitates money laundering and other illicit uses. But Bukele, who proposed the law to make Bitcoin legal tender, has touted the use of cryptocurrency for its potential to help Salvadorians living abroad to send money back home. Bukele has even more ambitious plans for Bitcoin, saying later on Wednesday that he wanted to use renewable energy from the country's volcanoes to offer Bitcoin mining facilities, which generate new units of the cryptocurrency and instructed state-owned geothermal energy firm Laheo to come up with a plan to make it happen. Meanwhile, Bitcoin enjoyed its best day in two weeks following the vote in El Salvador, rising as much as 6% to more than $35,000.
0: It was clear that the u.s is a little bit neutral on this right i mean they are okay with how he's running things it doesn't seem that it bothers them with how the country adopts and uses bitcoin at least for now now el salvador currently uses the u.s dollar as legal tender right now with bitcoin circulating on par with the dollar in el salvador the legal status of Bitcoin introduces a potential twist in the global financial arena. Unlike El Salvador, the United States has a more skeptical stance on Bitcoin, even though behind closed doors, (laughs) the Federal Reserve chairmen across the United States seem to be on board with Bitcoin, they just won't say it publicly. Uh, Now, (laughs) but several factors could push El Salvador in a very different direction from the United States. First, the danger of possible sanctions from other central banks. But, Bukele's recent move has generated mixed reactions from these central banks. Most notably, the Central American Bank for Economic Integration is willing to support the country in this endeavor, but the IMF and the World Bank <laughs> expressed their concerns and refused to provide assistance. Oh, come on, <laughs> you would think the BIS, um, with uh, what's that fat guy's name? I, I forget his forget his name. Gosh, he's he's the final boss in all this. Um, I can't remember his name, but go listen to our coverage of the Green Sun Conference. Uh, it's pretty hilarious. Anyway, that guy, being the old Mexico Central Bank president, you would think he would be on board with this, but he's not. <laughs> no surprise there. Other entities such as JP Morgan and the BIS are also skeptical because they suck. And and if we look even further, we can see that that's right. Jack Mahler, second coming of, dare I say, I won't say it, but who the Bitcoin gods have bestowed upon us has even made more waves, right? He's driven the price of Bitcoin trades even further down by rolling out bitcoin buys to a mere <laughs> let me let me get this right to a mere 0.03 hang on jack let me let me make sure i get this right to a mere 0.3% fee and that will only cover the spread charged by the market making firm supplying the bitcoin so they're not making any money on this new service and they're allowing people to buy Bitcoin directly from their strike app. It's pretty amazing, man. It's a race to zero. That's what he says. He says acquiring open source money should be free. That's what Jack says. Your move, Brian Armstrong. <laughs> Can play basketball on my court. Gosh. So I'm telling you, man. So I'm telling you. This whole sea change that we're seeing with Bitcoin this summer really is the ultimate solution for El Salvador in pushing and providing better jobs and investments for the generations that are growing up now in El Salvador. They are taking it upon themselves to right the wrongs of past generations. Communities in El Salvador are organizing themselves now, not only at, at Bitcoin Beach, but at other places. In the past, gangs in El Salvador thrived because of a lack of organization in these cities and small towns. The gangs now are unable to penetrate because Salvadorians have civil control in the communities they live in. This will lead to investing in themselves, building schools and developing teachers through youth education programs, fostering tangible prosperity. You know, educational value, you can see, feel, and touch. This is what will guarantee the conditions of stability and economic change for the people in El Salvador. They are creating a new tradition of hope in El Salvador. But they do this by first making peace with the past so they can hope for a better future. And it's truly a remarkable thing. With that, let's get into Bitcoin. Hot topics
2: Bitcoin Hot Topics.
0: So if we look at the news of the week, we can clearly see that there's a lot of crazy, crazy Bitcoin centric topics that have come out, most notably the George Soros Investment Fund. That news has hit us and this investment fund of billionaire George Soros, otherwise known as the guy who broke (laughs) the Bank of England, has reportedly started trading Bitcoin. Yeah, this hit Barron's. And speculation that the storied investor's firm has waded into other cryptocurrencies as well. And this is citing two sources that the street.com were able to get from sources fund management. Now, it really doesn't fucking matter at the end of the day whether this guy gets in or out. He's a fiat maximalist at best. You know, we all know that he's going to jump in and then jump right back out. He's not holding Bitcoin. This guy's holding fiat. That's all he's going to do. Good luck with that, George. Next up, we have 650 U.S. banks will soon be able to offer Bitcoin purchases to 24 million customers. That's right. Over 600 banks in the United States will soon be able to offer Bitcoin purchases. And this is all being offered because of a deal between the NCRI and the NYDIG. Instead of holding crypto directly for customers, the banks will use NYDIG's custody services. This is the same Big company that just recently invested into, that's right, Unchained Capital here in Austin, Texas. So it's no wonder <laughs> the NYDIG is also getting into these other banks and offering crypto custody as well. This just looks like where everything is headed when it comes to digital assets management firms. Right. We saw what Galaxy Digital did this past summer with their $1 billion Dollar purchase of bitco That's what Novo did this summer. Next up, we have Bitcoin miner news. Blockware raises twenty-five million dollars. That's right. North American Bitcoin mining firm Blockware raised twenty-five million, boosting its total investment to more than thirty-two million. They had just purchased fourteen thousand Bitcoin mining rigs, and we use eight thousand of them within a new flagship facility here in Kentucky. Way to go, Blockware! Now they just need to make sure that they can, <laughs> they be they be they be a part of that whole um, conglomerate, not the conglomerate, not conglomerate. Card, not a conglomerate. They need to be a part of the um, GigaChads. Uh, what is that called? Uh, partnership meetup? Uh, I mean, a mining council, whatever thing. Uh, Anyways, Blockware is already using that money currently to build out its operation. This quarter, the firm bought an additional 8,000 mining rigs for its upcoming flagship mining facility in Paducah. Paducah? Sorry if I got that wrong, Kentucky. And another 6,000 to resell to U.S. Bitcoin mining farms. Blockware aims to increase the power capacity of its Kentucky facility from 30 to 100 megawatts. It also wants to more than triple its collective hashing power from 300 petahash per second to above one exahash per second by the middle of next year. I think it can do it. We need you to do it. Next up, we have Bitcoin ETFs begin trading in Brazil. That's right. New Bitcoin ETFs have kicked off trading in Brazil and Dubai. They are the first Bitcoin ETFs in their respective regions. And in Brazil, a multi-crypto ETF kicked off in April. In Brazil, QR Capital's Bitcoin ETF, QBTC11, approved by regulators in March, started trading on the Brazilian stock exchange. And of course, Canadian asset management firm 3iQ's Bitcoin ETF started trading on the NASDAQ Dubai in the Middle East. Pretty freaking awesome, if you ask me. And then we have Kathy Wood, that's right, of ARK Invest, joins the Bitcoin ETF race ARK Invest is an investment firm, but they have filed their first Bitcoin ETF this week because Kathy Wood is a question mark bull? (laughs) Question mark? No, seriously. The arc 21 Shares ETF is the latest addition to a growing list of applications for a crypto ETF. Something the crypto industry has yet to get past is the mighty, almighty SEC though not for a lack of trying, that is. It's just uh, this one guy, this one douche, his name was Jay Clayton, and he was sitting there for so long, and he was just an asshole when it came to things. But currently, right now, the SEC is currently reviewing Bitcoin ETF filings from Wisdom WisdomTree, Fidelity, Vanek, and Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge Capital. Tree and Vanek have also filed for Ethereum ETFs because Ethereum is a scam and also a commodity unfortunately. How does it get past the security? Who knows? Joe Lubin must have paid a lot of money for that. Fiat money, that is. And then we should also mention that um, Kathy Wood is going to be doing the B-Word conference. And we're going to try to get coverage to that. It's on July 21st, 2021. Uh, Jack Dorsey is going to be there. Adam Back's going to be there. Lynn Alden's going to be there. Nick Carter. And supposedly, supposedly Elon Musk is going to be there to talk Bitcoin We'll see we've already asked for um, credentials to the conference. we'll see if we'll we'll get the punch to get in um, and if we do we'll cover it. If not well we'll cover it from afar <laughs> <laughs> This is our first our first run through a thriller Bitcoin. We're still getting our our sea legs going. We're gonna slowly tweak this slowly tweak that and over time we'll we'll get this going right let me know in our telegram what you liked about it what you hate about it what we could do better all that sort of jazz and and we'll figure it out this is what we do it's hard creating new shows but i like to make them fast and kill many <laughs> i don't want to kill this one i, I like the name <laughs> thriller bitcoin has a nice ring to it okay If you didn't hear the news, Thriller Premium is now on a donation model. What that means is we no longer have a paywall. We never had ads to begin with because we fucking hate them. <laughs> but we no longer have a paywall blocking from people to listen. We're on we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're everywhere now. So you can you can listen anywhere. If you want to go and subscribe to our Substack, you probably should because we're probably gonna get taken down or you know get pulled off right we don't want to be beholden to anybody we want to make sure everybody can listen to us we want to investigate and report in defense of bitcoin we want to keep our independence intact we will rely on donations from our readers and listeners as a key funding source but We're not gonna be begging people to donate to us. If they want to, if they choose to, cool, awesome, right? Your contribution will help with the overhead costs, but we're not gonna be reliant on this whole mainstream media or even outside our industry to hold the line on Bitcoin. No, we're gonna hold the line. We'll do that. One thing I didn't mention during the show was this whole need to create Thriller Bitcoin and this specific episode was due to the fact that Decrypt released an article going after Jack Mahler and his company, Strike. And if you don't know Decrypt, they are owned and subsidized by Joe Lubin's company, Consensus. So here we go again with the inner workings of our industry attacking Bitcoin focused companies like Strike trying to help outside countries in a humanitarian effort focus on their country and pushing that move forward for Bitcoin. That's why this episode was released. That's why we hold the line. That's why Thriller Bitcoin was made. That's what we're defending. Thank you.